As you can tell, we're going to be in Matthew again this morning. For those of you who were not with us last week, uh, we started in the uh, book of uh, Matthew, chapter 5. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I've wanted to do this for a long time, you know, probably over 10 years, and just never made the time for it. So I thought this is a good time after finishing up our study in Acts to jump back to uh, a study I've been interested in. And so um, that's why we're working our way through it. Let me uh, start with a word of prayer, and then we will... Uh, jump in. Lord, help us this morning as we uh, wrestle with the text we'll be looking at that um, we will understand correctly, firstly, that we will understand uh, what you intended to communicate. And then, Lord, I pray that your spirit will, in light of the truth understood, will work mightily in us to cause us to examine ourselves, to carefully um, repent as necessary. And um, at the same time that we will find ourselves rejoicing in you and your great and amazing mercy and love towards us. In your name I pray, amen. So this morning we are focusing in on verse 13 of chapter 5. Last week we covered chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. I want to give a little bit of a review because I don't think chapter 5 verse 13 can be understood correctly without understanding chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Before we jump in, I would like to say this. I think oftentimes, um, uh, popularly, the text, verse 13, as well as next week's text, at least Lord willing, next week's text, uh, verse 14, is oftentimes misunderstood. Uh, what I mean by that is oftentimes the statement in the beginning of verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, and verse 14, you are the light of the world, has oftentimes been misunderstood it's understood two ways. The one way um, is a way that we'll address in a moment, so I'm just lay that way aside because we're going to see it again as we review verses 1 through 12 briefly. But in 13 and 14, the opening statements of each verse has often been misunderstood as being something that is to be understood more politically, light and salt, um, and more about morality than it is about what the context is really driving towards here in the text. Now, at some level, the morality of it is certainly to be rec recognized and referenced, but in context, there's something much greater going on here. And that's the second way in which we've typically really made a major mistake in verse 13 and 14. We saw it last week, but just a reminder. It's uh, verses 2 through 12 as we said last week, has typically been called the what passage? The Beatitudes passage. And the reason why it's called the Beatitudes uh, passage is because, as we talked about last week, it's because we typically look at the text and say this is how we ought to be. Or to put it a different way, this is what we ought to do. And I would present, as I presented to you last week, that in chapter they are not declarations of commands or prohibitions, as the case may be. They are neither ones. What I mean by that, going back to 2 through, through 12, for example, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, does not have a command in it. There is no command there that says you must be or you must do an activity that would demonstrate itself as being poor in spirit. Just using it as an example. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to the text, to the message from last week as we work our way through the various statements of Jesus in that text. I don't want to go through all of that uh, this week. But what I was trying to get at last week 
was this. What Jesus is doing here is much more significant, much more important. And the reason why I'm saying this is because verse 13 and next week, verse 14, go along the same line. That is the immediate context. <clears throat> it is not that Jesus is speaking in this, in this uh, message uh, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee to the crowds and to the disciples. That's another error. A lot of people think he, that he's just speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the disciples and the crowds that are following him. But he is not speaking to them as we have typically understood him to be oftentimes. He is not declaring here this is how they must be. What Jesus is doing is he is referencing, without using the, the references or quoting actual quotes from Deuteronomy, he is referencing the law in chapter 5, verses 2, specifically 3 through 12, in these nine statements that he makes. And what he's doing is he's, he's basically giving nine important summations of the law. And when you remember the law in the book of Deuteronomy, you also remember that after the law is given, immediately thereafter, there, it shows up, uh, uh, Moses gives them the blessings. What are the blessings for several chapters? What are the blessings in perfectly keeping the law? And then after he finishes the discussion of the blessings, he says... These are the curses that happen that will come upon you by God if you don't perfectly keep the law. Now, the important word that I'm using repeatedly there is perfectly keep the law. Not occasional, not giving it a good try, not actually doing it okay. God's standard is absolute perfection. It's very important we get this. And again, when God gave through Moses, gave the, the, the law in the book of Deuteronomy, he followed it up with blessings and curses, and then after that he gave witnesses and a few other odds and ends. But the point is, the standard that God has for keeping the law is absolute perfection. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, one of the things, if, you're, if, if the Spirit's at work in you, you have to come away saying is, I'm doomed i'm absolutely doomed i cannot keep these laws to perfection it's impossible in deuteronomy and elsewhere throughout the old testament there is a talk that goes on quite regularly shows up first in the discussions of the blessings but then it happens throughout the old testament where god reminds the people there is a time of blessing coming when God will bless those who have kept the law. We must not miss the point that the Scriptures record that when Jesus came, it was described as being the blank of time. The fullness of time. That fullness of time is referencing the idea, the time of blessing, as mentioned first in Deuteronomy, has come. Why? Because Jesus the Messiah was here. The time of blessing has come. Which brings us to chapter 5 of Matthew when Jesus gets up and nine times says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man who, and then gives a specific statement that generalizes much of the uh, law. What is he saying? He's saying 
God promised it. The time for blessing was coming. He said it was going to come. It has come. Now come if this is you. And the operative term again is perfectly. If you have perfectly kept this, if this perfectly describes you, then it is time for you to receive your blessing. And it describes what those blessings are. For example, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The blessing in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can't miss the point that in every one of the statements of what the blessing is going to be, you can't miss the point that he is describing the blessings of salvation. Can you not miss that? And eternal blessings of salvation. The problem is that no one is able to receive the blessing. That's the point of the, what has been traditionally called the Beatitudes. The point is that everyone who heard Jesus' declaration in chapter 5, verse 2 through 12, has to come away saying, I cannot be blessed. And if you're a good Jew that knows the Old Testament and knows the law, you know that if you cannot be blessed, then there's only one thing left for you. And that's the curse. The only thing left for you is to be cursed and to receive the full vent of God's curse. And that's the point of chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, which is why no one comes forward to receive the blessing. It is interesting, by the way, I, didn't, I ran out of time last week, but it is interesting later on in Matthew, and you could turn there if you would like, chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, shortly before Jesus is arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified, he spends a lot of time talking about the coming crucifixion. He spends a lot of time talking about not only that, but the ultimate return of Jesus, of himself, to judge the world. As a matter of fact, starting in verse 31, you have this, this very strong declaration about the future judgment, which will, res- will be the final culmination of the curse. But in the middle of the discussion of this judgment, we come to verse 34 of chapter 25, and Jesus says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are what? Blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, before, from the foundation of the world. And he goes on from there. In this final judgment, there will be much in the way of curses that will be put on people for eternity. But there will be people seated where? Hand of God who will hear God say what? Come you who are blessed by my Father. That's what Jesus will say. Come you who are blessed. Direct connection back to chapter 5 verses specifically 3 through 12. In contrast to 3 through 12 of chapter 5 where no one is blessed, correct? 
We saw it last week. No one is blessed. At the end of the age, Jesus says, in the end of the age, there will be some who are blessed. Did you pick that up there in 34? There will be some who are blessed. But in chapter 5, there are none. Why is that? Because none of them perfectly kept the law. But what does he do from chapter 7 onward? And even in chapter 7, what does he do? He talks about his coming crucifixion. He talks about being the perfect Lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world. And the ramifications of his crucifixion, his sacrifice, will be what? Whereas in chapter 5, no one receives a blessing. The ramifications of Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection is what? There will, some, there will be some who will sit on the right hand. There will be some as a result of sitting on the right hand who will hear, come and be blessed. What's the difference? Is it because they did so well with 3 through 11 of chapter 5? No. It's because Jesus did. It's because Jesus kept the law perfectly and yet stood in our place and absorbed the wrath of God for us and then put us in his place and gave us his righteousness. And as a result of that, he will, we will hear him say, come and be blessed. We who are absolutely still unworthy of being blessed, are we not? Are we worthy of being blessed? No. We still don't keep the law perfectly, do we? Of course not. But according to the Scriptures, there's coming a day when those who are His children will hear, in the day of judgment, come to those on my right, come and receive your blessing. Amen? But chapter 5 doesn't have that. Chapter 25 talks about that. But chapter 5 doesn't have that. That's not the point of chapter 5. Chapter 5, the point is to show how desperate we really are. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. We come to verse 13, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And it's important that we see that chapter 5, 13 is flowing directly out of and connected to verses 3, verses 2 actually, through, through 12 of chapter 5. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's an interesting statement. Next week, again, Lord willing, we'll pick up verse 14, so I don't want to go there now, but they're really parallel statements in the beginning, although verse 14 goes off a bit at the end, a different direction. Verse 13, Jesus, not having a different message, having the exact same message, continuing, I would argue, the exact same declaration as is given in 2 through 12. Jesus is giving us verse 13, which is really part of the capstone of the whole thing, when he declares to the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the very first statement he makes, you are the salt of the earth. It's an interesting statement. 
I want you to notice a couple things, a few observations. Observation number one. I want you to notice that, again, there's no command in the text. He didn't say in the text, you must be salt of the earth, did he? It's not implied. It's not stated. The declaration is clear. It's not you must be. It is you are the salt of the earth. As he speaks to these Jewish people who are steeped in Judaism, Immediately after the discussions of blessing in, in 2 through 12 that they are disqualified from. What Jesus is doing, I would argue in verse 13, in the opening salvo of the verse, is if I can describe 2 through 12 as a cranking down on the screw to bring more and more the point home that they are condemned that they are hopeless. Verse 13, I would argue, he just set down the screwdriver and he picked up the power screwdriver. Now he's cranking it down tight. That's exactly what's happening here. When he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, just like in 2 through 12, when Jesus references the law and is connecting what he's declaring in 2 through 12 directly to the law, he's in a very real way doing the same thing in verse 13. You see, when God made these people who were not his people and made them his people out at Mount Sinai. The ramifications of that was the law. The law was given to them and, he, and, and it, it involved a covenant and they became part of a covenant of life and peace. Did they not? When they became, were placed in this covenant with God, one of the really clear declarations in the law was that the people were to be what? To the rest of the world. They were to be salt and light. They were to be declarers of Yahweh. They were to be declarers, ministers of the truth of their God. That's who they were designated to be. They were chosen people. One of the major reasons why we were chosen to be God's people is to be bringers of Yahweh to the world. Question. Did they do that? They didn't, did they? Oh, there was a couple, like Jonah. Needed a whale for that one, right, though? There are a few. There's some prophets that did well, right? But generally speaking, salt? No, not really. But he declares here, Jesus says, you are the salt of the world. Just like we saw in 2 through 12, this is not a time to be these things. Right? That's what we saw in 2 through 12. This is not the time to be these things. 
This is a time of blessing for those who are these things. In the same way, in chapter 5, verse 13, he is referencing them not for what they need to do, but who they are if they're faithful people, according to God's standard. The problem is that we discover that they're not the salt of the earth, are they? That's what we're going to discover. Now, if, if I may pause just for a second uh, more on the opening statement of verse 13. Um, a couple things that we can observe. It talks about salt and it talks about the earth, which is referencing the entirety of humanity throughout anywhere in the world. Salt has been referenced by many preachers and theologians for all of its various purposes. Purpose, of course, seasoning. Purpose for preserving. Purpose for um, salt has been, it's actually been used mon for, as money at times in history. Uh, it actually occasionally has been used for, for, uh, in a small way, fertilizer back in the day, back in those days. And people have tried to argue that there's something going on here with all these different meanings in this text. But the text itself tells us what Jesus is referencing. Because what it says here, you are the salt of the earth, the very next statement, but if the salt, if salt has lost its taste, or if you have the King James thing, it says savory, right? It's savoriness or savor, savor. It's savor, it's taste, it's effect. The idea is, if it's lost its effect on food. Does that make sense? If it's lost its effect on food, we've got a problem. And so we, we are informed right away in 13 that when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's referencing flavoring. Not preserving. Not money. Not fertilizer. Not medicinal. I didn't mention that one before. It's referencing flavoring. That's what savor means or taste means and he says you are the salt of the earth and it's referencing the contrast between who the hebrew people were before they were god's chosen people to after does that make sense you are the salt of the earth it's referring to after after they were chosen after the covenant was made they are the light of the world I'm sorry, this, I looked at the wrong verse. They are the salt of the earth. But he says next, but if, a salt, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The implication of the statement must be recognized. In other words, what I mean by this, Jesus is not talking hypothetically. He's not having a conversation about salt. He's talking about the people who just discovered that they cannot be what? Blessed. They are not in a position to be blessed and therefore they are only in the position to be cursed. And as, as Jesus piles on in the text in saying you are the salt of the earth, when He says, but if salt has lost its taste, what He's referencing is not a hypothetical. He's referencing the reality that the salt has what? 
it actually has lost its, its taste. And the salt is not physical salt. It is not referencing physical food. He's talking about the Jews who are hearing him, the masses on the side of the hill outside of Galilee. And in effect, what he's saying to them is, they are the salt of the earth, right? That's obvious. They are the salt of the earth. But when he says, if salt has lost its saltiness, and if you didn't measure up in 2 through 12, what does that mean? You lost your saltiness. Does that make sense? This is what he's building off. He's building off of 2 through 12. When he says, if salt has lost its, its saltiness, its savor, its taste, he's referencing them and that they aren't blessed. Very important we get that. And what he says to them is stunning. But if salt has lost its taste or its savor, its tastiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer to that is more complex than you think. Because on the one hand, one of the things that scientists know is that salt can't, what? Lose its saltiness. Salt is salty. It always has been. It always will be. It's always salty. It can never become unsalty. If you can recover it, you can use it again and again and again and again and again. It never ceases to be salty. What is he referring to then when he says, but if salt has lost its taste? Because the implication of the text is that those who are listening have what? Lost their saltiness. Correct? But salt can't lose its saltiness. It's really kind of an odd statement. A lot of people have tried to argue that, that again, Jesus' argument is on the theoretical. If, they could, if it could, how could it get back there again? To saltiness. And the obvious answer would be that if it's lost, it can't come back. But I would argue Jesus is not playing off of some sort of theoretical here in the text. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What does he mean by salt losing its saltiness? Well, actually it's relatively simple to understand if we get out of our era. We live in a really unique era, a really unique time. Because we can go to the store and we can buy salt, right? You can buy as much salt as you want. Not only can you buy as much as you want, it's pretty cheap. Isn't it? Really cheap. It can get really hard and you can smash it and break it back up and use it again, right? Sometimes we put rice in the salt shaker so that it absorbs the moisture so that the salt doesn't get clumpy. And maybe do other things. But it, in Jesus' day... Salt was harvested much more crudely than it is today. Much more crudely. Much more, they didn't have the technology, nor did they have the implements, the tools that we have today. 
And although there, were some, there was some salt that was taken out of the Dead Sea by evaporation, for the most part, salt came out of marshes and places where, where uh, it wasn't done control, in a controlled way. It was just evaporation, and then the marshes are there. They'd scrape it off, and they would use it. However, the idea of losing its saltiness was more of a vernacular term. Or, that's probably a bad term, but it's, it was more of a just experiential idea or presentation. The idea is that if you got in the right place in a marsh and, and, and dredged up some of this dried salt, it would be good for all sorts of purposes. Because relatively pure. But much of the salt flats was so corrupted by mud gravel, decaying bodies, animal bodies, decaying plant life, and things like that, that the hope of the people to dig in and get salt that's useful was impossible. The salt was at that point in time, forever corrupted. You couldn't get true salt out of it, useful salt out of it. What's Jesus trying to talk about here? This is where it gets really interesting because it's, in, it's connected to 3 through 12. You are the salt of the earth. It's a covenant. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It can't be. What is the, what is the, the cause of saltiness to, or to, of salt to lose its saltiness in the storyline? Not in the description I just described to you. That's just the illustration. But if the people are the salt of the earth, and he's referencing all the corruption in the salt in the salt flats, make, making the salt useless. What is all of the corruption that is in these people who are salt of the earth? What do you think it is? Well, let me help you. They're not poor in spirit. They don't mourn. They're not meek. They're not hun- they don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not merciful. They're not pure in heart. They're not peacemakers. They're not persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're not reviled on Jesus' account. That's the corruption. That is the corruption. And what Jesus is saying as He looks out over the hillside, His disciples close to Him, And then all the multitudes all over the, actually down below him, all the multitudes down below him across the whole hillside all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. He's referencing people who have, could I just submit this to you? By definition of humanity, By, defi- by, by, by the necessity of being fallen creatures, 
have found out in verses 2 through 12, which are just illustrative of all the other commands of the Scriptures and prohibitions of, of Deuteronomy, have discovered what? That their lives, although there's little bits and pieces, correct? There's little bits and pieces of meekness. There's little bits and pieces of rejoicing. There's bits and pieces of mourning, right? There's bits and pieces of, of being poor in spirit and all the rest of those things and everything else that they found in the law. There's little bits and pieces of the law in all of them, right? Obedience to the law. There's little pieces. But for the most part, what Jesus is saying to these hearers is this. Although, certainly you've tried, because they did, they tried to keep the law, didn't they? You have some bits and pieces. But the truth of the matter is that there is so much corruption in you in all nine categories of 2 through 12. And again, just illustrative of all the rest of the laws. All the failures, even those little bits and pieces, there's some grains in there of salt. But even those grains that are there are so thoroughly corrupted by everything else. Right? So thoroughly corrupted. Now, if you listened last week, you had to come away saying, as we went through all those verses, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, and you had to come away saying something about yourself, unless you are really hard-hearted. You had to come away saying to yourself, that one's not me. Nope, that one's not me. Nope, that one's not me. Nope, not, th not that one. Maybe the next one. Nope, not that one. Well, hopefully that, uh, not that one, all the way down to the ninth one. You're like, yeah, maybe the last one. Ah, oh, another swing in this. You had to, in going through every single one of those last week, say, that's not me. Not only is it not me present tense, it was never me. Not from the moment I was, I was conceived. The Bible tells us we're conceived in sin. And we come out of our mother's womb speaking lies. That's what it says. From the moment I was conceived till now, that's not me. Therefore, the only thing that I can say about me is that Verse 13 is what? I've lost my saltiness. There is no saltiness. It is so thoroughly polluted. That's the point of verse 13. This is not a call to be salt of the earth is a declaration that we were created for that. You realize that? But we're not that. And so the real point of verse 13 
is this. If salt has lost its taste, and it has universally, whether you're the disciples sitting right in front of Jesus, or whether you're the multitudes behind them, or whether you weren't even born yet, which none of us were, the point Jesus is trying to drive toward is because of verses 5, I'm sorry, uh, 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 3 through 12, it has lost its saltiness. So the real question is, if it has, and it has, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's the real question. That's the point Jesus is driving towards. If you can't be blessed, that means you must be cursed, which means even though you are the salt of the world, of the yeah, salt of the earth, you have lost your saltiness. You are completely, Jesus is saying, corrupted by other things. Which is just another way of saying you're cursed. And he makes it really clear after, after he asks the question, what can, it be, what can be done to make it be restored? Because of how he answers that question, it makes it very clear that there is, ready? No hope. He answers it really clearly. You are the salt of the earth. However, if you've lost your saltiness and you have according to 5, 3 through 12, how can it be restored? How can the saltiness be restored? And the answer is it can't. Because he doesn't give any answer that you would expect. You'd expect that he'd tell you, well, you could do this, you could do that, you could do something else, you could try this, you could try that, right? Wouldn't you expect that? If you take your car into a shop because it won't start, won't turn over, it won't do anything, the lights won't even come on, and you take it into the shop, you expect the shop owner to tell you what can be done to get the car restored, right? Especially when you tell the shop owner, no cost too high. Charles, you've been a mechanic. If a mechanic, if a guy comes in and says, no cost too high, what do I need to do to get it restored? You're going to have an answer for him, won't you? <laughs> but you'll have an answer for him, right? Of course. No matter what's wrong with it, no matter how fatal it is, you can get it running again, can't you? With enough money and enough time. And enough bruised knuckles. Does that make sense to everybody? And that's the way with almost everything, right? With almost everything, enough time, enough money, Anything can be fixed, right? And so you come into verse 13 and you hear him say that we're the salt of the earth and then say, but if you lose your saltiness and according to 5, 3 through 12, you have, how can it be restored? In every way we understand that it possibly can be restored. Enough time, enough money, it can be restored. And so you wait for Jesus to tell you how it can be restored. And he doesn't. Your only hope at this point in time, if you understand what he's saying in verse 3 through 12, your only hope, and you're clinging to his every word, your only hope is that he has an answer for your brokenness, for your lack of saltiness. And what does Jesus say to that situation of hopeless, seeming hopeliness, hope, hopelessness? He says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
That's not the answer I'm looking for. I don't know about you. That's not the answer I'm looking for. Because he's not talking about literal salt, is he? He's using it as an illustration. And when he says here if it, that, that it's lost its savor, again, it's lost its, its, its taste, he's referencing the people, and he, as a result, is declaring that they are in a hopeless, doomed situation. Notice again how he describes it. It is no longer good for anything. What is the anything referencing? The anything is referencing food, which food is connected directly to life, isn't it? You don't eat long enough, and what happens? You die. It's no longer good for anything food-wise. Someone, someone once said, if food is unsavory, it can, be rec- it can be rescued by salt. But if salt becomes unsavory, it can be rescued by nothing. It's an interesting perspective. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What is Jesus getting to when he says thrown out and trampled under people's feet? Well, that's what they would do. They would, they would take salt that was no good and they'd use it to, to uh, put on the road so that nothing would grow there, for example. Put on paths so it wouldn't grow there. Nothing would grow there. Uh, that type of thing. But w- ultimately, what's the value of the salt? None. Because what do people do? They just walk on it, ignore it, don't think about it at all, right? It's meaningless to them. They just trample on it. But, but more importantly, again, it's not referencing literal salt. What is he talking about when he says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on under people's feet? What do you think he's referencing there? He's talking about damnation. He's talking about condemnation. That idea of being thrown out is repeated by Jesus numerous times referencing judgment, ultimate judgment, and the ramifications, the ultimate conclusion of judgment. Trampled underfoot is the same idea. It's not just in the Gospels, but it's presented elsewhere as well. It's about being under feet. In the Old Testament, it's referenced repeatedly. In fact, when you conquered a king, the conquering king would take the conquered king, and you know what he'd do before he'd kill him? He'd put his foot on the conquered king's neck symbolizing being trampled, what? Underfoot. Judgment with a sure coming destruction. That's the picture that's presented universally throughout the Scriptures. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking about here. He is saying, now again, we can't miss the point. He is not saying be careful that you don't lose your saltiness. He is not saying that. He's not saying be after today while still today like it says in Hebrews. So you don't get a hard or cold heart. He's saying here it's too what? Late. It's too late. You've already lost your your savor, your, your, your taste, your saltiness. 
he's saying to these people on the hillside north of Galilee. And since you've already lost your saltiness, what can be done to, for it to be restored? Nothing. You are doomed to be thrown out and trampled under feet. It's a horrifying passage. Horrifying. And he's going to build from here, by the way. But ultimately, the story doesn't end here. It doesn't even come close to ending here. Because although Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him, right? Right? The scriptures say, but as to, to as many as what? Receive him what? To them what? Gave them the right to become the children of God. You know what that is? Blessing. You realize that? Blessing. In place of curse. Blessing instead of cursing. Children of God. Wait a second. Let's go back to verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. They shall be comforted. Verse 5. They shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. They shall be satisfied. Verse 7. They shall receive mercy. Verse 8. They shall see God. Verse 9. They shall be what? Verse 9. Called sons of God. Right? You see, what Jesus is doing in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's crucial you get this, it, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is purely and simply proclaiming to the hearers this, and this one thing only. You have no hope. You only have curses and judgment that's all you have and then he will begin to proclaim I am what the Messiah I am the Redeemer in effect, he will describe himself as the salt of the earth. Will he not? Without using those words, but he will. And in reality, he will actually, I'm jumping to verse 14, he will actually proclaim himself to be what? The light of the world. Will he not? Won't he? He'll do it repeatedly. You know what all that means? It means that Jesus will be our salt. Jesus will do what only He can do. He will not restore our saltiness. He will be our salt. Do you realize that? He will come and cleanse won't he? Won't he? He will cleanse us. He will give us a new heart. He will send His Spirit to what? 
live in us. He will be our salt. Another way to put it, Jesus says it, or I'm sorry, Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, or verse 4, I'm sorry, when he says, when Christ who, very next statement, when Christ who is our life. And the verse before that, verse 3, he says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. We are in him and he in us. Amen? And it changes everything. Because left to my own devices, my saltiness is gone. And your saltiness is gone. And we have no hope but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Judgment. And yet, God in his, in his mercy rescues some and becomes their salt, doesn't he? And what cannot happen, what absolutely can not happen his saltiness is restored. What is impossible doesn't become possible. What's impossible does not become probable. What is impossible comes guaranteed. Do you realize that? Now one of the interesting things about salt, when you, if you were to leave here today, I'm just going to ask you a question. If you were to leave here today and drive over to Texas Roadhouse, just down the road, and you order two steaks, and you receive two steaks, but you tell them, I want you to cook both of them. Cook one the way you normally do. I want you to cook the other one with no salt at all. None. They bring two plates out. And they place them in front of you. Do you think you can tell the difference? What do you think? Think you'll be able to notice it? Would it be obvious? You bet it would. It absolutely would. There is no question there'd be something different about one than the other. Wouldn't there be? The only way it's not possible is if it's unsavory. Is if the salt has lost its savor, right? Now, to use the real illustration, forget the no salt and salt. What you really have is you're, it's the wintertime now and you go to Texas Roadhouse and you say, I want to order two steaks. I want you to make one steak like the way you normally make it. Okay? The way you normally make it, that's what I want you to do. For the second steak, I want you to take it out to your vehicle and I want you to rub that steak against the side of your vehicle where all the salt has built up from the last snowstorm and all the salt that was thrown out on the road. I want you to get the saltiness off of that. 
Think you can tell the difference? <laughs> yeah. One would be pretty nasty, wouldn't it? You'd be biting in and your teeth are grinding on dirt and pebbles and all sorts of other things, right? Probably some, some um, cinders and other things. It'd be pretty nasty, wouldn't it? What was that? Some squirrel guts. Probably have some oil and gas in it too. It'd be pretty nasty. Probably some antifreeze in it. It'd be really nasty, wouldn't it? What, what good is that steak? What good is it? Can it be recovered? No. Can it be restored? Mm -mm. That's you. That's me. But you know what's amazing? God does what we can't do because he takes that steak and he makes it like the most beautiful, gorgeous steak. Doesn't he? Because the salt is restored. The point of the text is to show us how desperate we need Jesus. As people who are saved, if you are a saved person, you are redeemed, you've been, you've been, your sins have been paid for on the cross, you've repented and believed. You know one of the interesting things about the text you could argue, even though there's no command in here, and it's important we see that again, but at the same time we ought to recognize that there's a difference between those two stakes. Isn't there? So the restoration that Jesus is doing that he promises from here on out to do in his children is what? They will once again become what? Salt of the earth. Will they not? Now salt of the earth is not political. Remember I started out there. Salt of the earth is what? Proclaiming the one who does what? Who restores. We find ourselves impelled by the Spirit to do what? Both to other believers and to unbelievers what? Proclaim the one who restores. Something that is unable to be restored. Yes, and the result is the, the, the qualities begin to become manifest by the Spirit. Absolutely. No question. That's what I'm saying. It, show, it has effect. It's not that I've got to try harder and do more and do more and try harder and do more and try more and do more. The Spirit has these. Do we work? Yes, we work, though, because He works. Right? But the inevitable effect of saltiness being restored or salt being restored to saltiness is the evidence is there. The evidence shows. It, we, and we ultimately find ourselves by the Spirit being the salt of the earth. It's really troubling to me that too many times Christians can be people who they claim to be believers there's no saltiness. The evidence isn't there. The love for Jesus isn't there. The rejoicing that He has taken me from no saltiness to salt. 
that He has transformed me in a way that only He could do. And as a result, the love of Christ is controlling me. That's not there. And the, the point of this text is for the readers of the text to stop and say, wait a second. Is the saltiness there? Is it there? Not because I run so well or work so hard, but because God has showed mercy to me. And He is showing mercy on me. And His Spirit is at work in me. And His Spirit is transforming me. And saltiness, by the Lord's work, is evidencing Himself in me. And itself in me. And as a result, because of God's mercy, I am once again salt of the earth. That God is using as a means to bring more people from nothing to saltiness again. Judgment to blessing. Am I someone who is doomed and condemned? Or am I blessed because of Christ in me? And is the evidence of Christ in me a supernatural saltiness that is the salt of the earth? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We know that without you, we are nothing. Without you, we are doomed. Without you, we are condemned to be thrown out of the house and trampled under people's feet. We know that's our only hope. We need you every hour, every minute, every moment. Even as saved people, we know that we need you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will work in us. And in your mercy, you will cause us to once again be salt of the earth. Restore us. Transform us. Be at work in us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Oh, I'm